Hello and welcome to another episode of the Digiday Podcast. I'm Kaylee Barber and today I'm joined by Zilla Bing Thorne, the Chief Executive of Future Publishing. Future Publishing has a portfolio of more than 150 special interest brands, ranging from Yachting World to Photography Week to Music Week and more. It also reaches a global audience of more than 400 million people, which is a number that the company hopes to continue growing in the coming year. Also top of mind for Future PLC is its e-commerce business, which is a growth opportunity for a publisher whose primary audience has hobbies and interests that they're willing and keen to spend money on. We'll get into all of that and more, but first, welcome Zilla. Hi, Kaylee. Nice to see you. Nice to see you too. All right. So let's start by going over Future's business model and how that looked in 2020. Um, And if you can maybe talk about how being a niche publisher, um, a special interest publisher fits into um, that business model, that'd be great as well. Yeah, wonderful. I'd be delighted to do that. So at Future, we are a global specialist media publisher, as you've outlined, and we stress the words internally around global and also around specialist media. Um, We very much are the view, which is that in today's digital landscape, your audience can find you as much as you find them, and therefore you should create your content and have a mindset of reaching the broadest possible audience available to you, which is why we think about global first rather than local markets. And then we're very much about specialist media. And what we mean by that is where we've got communities of people who are really passionate about the things that they do. And those communities can be very small, so super niche, but they can also be very large. So, for example, Tom's Guide in the US is one of the biggest consumer electronics uh, brands we have in the US. And then we also have a small uh, magazine called Bow International, which is about archery. So you kind of got really large down to really small. But the common thing is specialist media. And then within that framework, what we really look to do is try to diversify our business. And we try to do that through uh, geographical diversification. So that plays the global part. We try to do that through uh, content distribution. So be that, you know, uh, through podcasting or through magazines or through online content or more recently through AVOD. And then we also try to do that through monetization channels, which, you know, ranges from digital advertising through to e-commerce all the way through to magazine copy sales. So we're always thinking about, you know, how can we make sure the content's reaching the biggest audience and the biggest markets in the way that they want to consume it. Um, And that very much underpins everything we do. And then the final part in terms of our business is that like any media company today, we're we're enabled by tech. And we've invested a lot of money and, and resource around having a proprietary tech stack, which just makes it easier for us to reach our audiences and to work together collaboratively. Got it. And um, I have a a ton of questions based off of that, but I'm curious um, for the proprietary tech stack that you mentioned, is that something that like, is that like a licensing or a software as a service business or is that just your own kind of internal? No, it's our own internal technology. And we made a decision about eight years ago, which was if it was going to be consumer facing or customer facing, we wanted to own it ourselves so that as we grew our business, we were able to scale our technology appropriately without being dependent on someone else. But what it's also enabled us to do is that as new areas of consumption have been created, we've been able to quickly pivot into them because you're not waiting on someone else's technical roadmap to give you what you need. And and then, you know, the worst of both is when you're using someone else's technology, but then you've got your own in-house team kind of bespoking it. And then you end up with a lot of, um, you know, technical debt, which isn't something we wanted. So, so we made the decision that we were going to uh, own anything that was um, consumer-facing and direct monetization. 
Got it. Okay, that makes sense. Um, and I think what's interesting about um, your position as a global publisher um, that's like special interest focused is like, I guess hobbyist publications tend to be very, um, I don't want to say small, but they're very like concentrated, right? Like they're very enthusiastic, but they're also limited because only so many people are, you know, interested in that one area. But I guess I'm curious, like, is having this global position, um, is that your attempt at, like, scaling up um, your audience? Or why is the global side of things so important for your business? Yeah, so it's a really good point. And I think that, as as I mentioned, some of our hobbyist publications are are quite small and quite niche. But at the same time, you know, we've got the number one brand globally in the English-speaking world in PC gaming. And PC gaming is a big audience you know so there's nothing small about that and so i think that we 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 mustn't make the mistake of falling into the trap of thinking that because it's a hobby it must be small Mm -hmm. you know we very much view ourselves as being um about loyal communities and areas of passion for people you know one of our philosophies is as a modern publisher which is you know create it once and then find ways to monetize and distribute it many so we're always thinking about how can we you know, take this piece of content and maximize its utility, especially as the environment changes around us uh, and the landscape of how we monetize our content constantly evolves. And so that's what I was thinking about global, which was, you know, if you're an enthusiastic PC gamer, you're just as enthusiastic in Australia as you are in the US. And therefore, why would we want to limit our reach to just the market we operate in? Uh, And, you know, that's been a core driver of us kind of pivoting into a US first by and large mindset, because, you know, in the English speaking world, that's the largest audience that we have available to us. Mm -hmm. And so Future is a PLC business. Um, Can you talk about what that, I guess, means for people who don't know, but also like what that enables you to do from like a a monetization diversification kind of point of view? Sure. So so what that means is we're listed in the UK uh, stock market. So we're publicly quoted stock. Um, and bound by the UK listing rules. Um, so what that means is that we are very public about what we do. We have certain reporting requirements. Um, we, we have to go there and, and you know, be accountable to our shareholders. But at the same time, what that means is that as we have grown our business, we've been able to access that support of our shareholders very easily and we have a lot of liquidity in that market. So um, you know, when we went back, Future's been around for 35 years mm-hmm. and it was actually originally founded by... Um, Chris Anderson, who went on to found TED. So really entrepreneurial organization bound up in, you know, content and reaching audiences. However, you know, lost its way a little bit 10 years ago and and didn't diversify away from magazines and therefore had this kind of legacy problem of of magazine publishing. And as we have pivoted over the the last few years into much more around what, you know, the strategy we've been talking about, around diversification and globalization, as we perform for our shareholders, it's allowed us to access capital to therefore buy other assets mm-hmm. and to grow our business further, which we've been very fortunate to be able to do that and have the support of our shareholders in achieving that. Got it. So then about 10 years ago is when you started going into the digital. Are I guess, are you considered digital first at this point? Like, do you consider digital your primary focus? Yeah. So 70% of our revenues come from digital okay. um, and 30% come from other forms. So we're very much digital first. I think what makes us unusual is we still love magazines. So we are not kind of a magazine publisher trying to become a digital publisher. We're a global, we are a global media publisher. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're absolutely clear that the 
opportunity in the market sits within digital and within the media la- that that side of the media landscape. Okay, so like seventy percent um, digital is that like I guess coming mainly from advertising or how does that break down? Yeah, sure. So of that, we've been uh, we basically break down to being about sixty uh, percent ads and about forty percent coming from e-commerce. Okay, um, in that mix. Um, and so we've been really fortunate. We, one of the things that we do with our content, when you look at the audiences we talk to, is we we help them make two decisions. We help them work out how to do something. So how can I take a better fo- photography? How can I learn to take nighttime photography? So we help answer those questions, how to do something. But then what we also do then is say, you know, what's the best thing to buy? So if I want to learn how to take nighttime photography, what I then want to know is what's the best flash? for nighttime photography. So we meet these two primary needs. And through that, you've then got a really qualified um, advertising audience. You know, so you've got a really endemic audience who are very knowledgeable about the subject matter. And therefore, that's really attractive for advertisers to be around. And so in a world that's kind of having this kind of cookie, post-cookie debate about audiences, you know, we kind of rise above that because what we are is brand leaders with large scale, with highly endemic audiences. So you find that that brands want to be with you. But at the same time, what we realized was if we were about helping our audiences, which is one of our primary purposes, the best thing we could do was then go out and find out the best price for those flashes that we were recommending. So we built a piece of technology which works pretty much like a price comparison database, but brings back the best price in the market. And and as a consequence, that's allowed us to then grow our e-commerce because we get paid a commission every time a transaction happens. Mm -hmm. But of course, what it starts off with is, what was important to the reader and what was important to the reader was help me work out what's the thing I should buy and then help me find it in the from the either the retailer I trust the most or the cheapest. So it's, yeah. you know, you do, people don't always want the cheapest. Sometimes quality is important to them. And so the consequence that as we've grown our audience, we've been able to kind of grow rapidly this e-commerce part of our business alongside our advertising, which continues to grow really well as well. Mm-hmm. But And that's allowed us to kind of really drive uh, both streams, which is one of the reasons why our um digital margins have continued to be really strong is that we're kind of generating two lots of revenue. Yeah. I think that um obviously e-commerce has had this like, I guess, I don't know if you want to call it a renaissance given the state of the world, but like it, you know, it's been kind of booming lately. And um I I'm curious, like, are you doing anything in the way of like, I guess I don't know what it's called at different publications, but like last click kind of advertising or um are you combining like your commerce with um, advertising at all on your sites, um, display ads that have uh, products specifically linked in them to try to like combine those two areas? Or is it kind of more of a correlation, like one grows and the other one kind of grows with it? Yeah, it's more complementary for us at the moment. One of the things, I mean, we've obviously got huge amounts of data with over 400 million users a month across our portfolio. You can see a lot about what the trends are what's going on in the market and you know one of uh, one of my nice little snippets is we were actually the first person in the US to sell um a PlayStation on Amazon so we were the first person to bring traffic into Amazon for that so you know we're really at the point of of helping people make those buying decisions however mm-hmm. rather than put that monetization into the ad what we're saying is you can advertise around it but we want to kind of keep it separate because Got it. we want to make sure that the editorial sits in its own right um, sure. What we do find is that if advertisers advertise around that type of content and they're in the list, then they're going to get a much better click-through rate 
hmm. you know, to make the purchase because there's a reinforcement of the brand. Um, but we don't actually put the uh, the click through actually directly into the ad. Okay. Yeah. So I guess like in that instance, like if um, brands are listed in um, like a roundup of maybe best nighttime flash for photography or whatever, um, are you then going to those brands and saying like, hey, you might want to advertise with us because it'll increase your sales even more? Yeah, and absolutely. And that's where the virtue circle is really beautiful because you started off saying to to Canon or Nikon, hey, we've got photographers, you want to advertise on our brands, you know, we're the, the number one camera site in the UK, the number two in the US, you want to be around us. And then they advertise and then we started to do purchase through e-commerce and then you're able to go back and say, look, look how many cameras sold, we sold last week. We're bigger than Target. Therefore, you want to advertise around us because we've got the audience that are buying today. And so that's where we think it's a really great relationship for your advertising partners as well as a great relationship for our readership. Got it. Um, yeah, you mentioned like, I don't know, are you selling more cameras than Target? Like, is that a... <laughs> yeah, well, we sell a laptop every 30 seconds. So that's really bad, right? Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. 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 We sell a lot, we, we sell a lot of content, a lot yeah. of product. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Um, so I guess at that end, like e-commerce, are you mostly operating off of like an affiliate um, model at this point? Or do you have any kind of like product licensing or uh, any kinds of marketplaces? So at this point in time, the what we call e-commerce is, is almost exclusively affiliate commission, um, where we only get paid if the retailer gets a transaction. And I was saying to someone earlier today, I really think that with the changes that's happening in the retail high state, high street and, and how that's all evolving, and especially in these unusual times, retailers are getting much more sophisticated about being able to transact online, mm-hmm. but discovering them is hard. And publishers like us can really win in that market where you can basically be the, the modern day high street by saying, look, here's all the products we think that are really interesting that might you might care about. But it's like handpicked for you because it's in an area that you're interested in. And so that's where we think there's a kind of a renaissance in publishing around what where does where is publishing and where does retail meet? And so we kind of think of ourselves as the as the curator of the high street online. Yeah. And I think that that's you know why therefore we take a commission on uh, the transaction rather than necessarily be a retailer ourselves. We do, and we don't necessarily, you know, do a lot of licensing in terms of our brands and, you know, what we would call merchandise sales. We do a little bit of that, but that's more kind of fandom rather than necessarily kind of pure retail in the traditional sense of the word. Where we have seen an interesting move in the market has been um, in two directions, but both around intent, which is what we think we're very good at doing. The first one is around what if that product that you want to buy, you still need to have a physical interaction around. So, as a, for example, we're a leading publisher of, of home improvement content mm-hmm. and we can help you work out the things you should consider about having new windows, but you're not going to buy windows online. So we've been building out lead generation capabilities so that we can actually say, look, if you'd like someone to get in touch with you, leave your details here. And now what's brilliant about that is, again, we help the, um, the consumer with not having to go and find all the different suppliers but from our perspective, we can monetize that through passing on that high value lead. But we also get a lot of really good, rich first party data there, which means we're constantly feeding back our understanding of of who the consumer is and, and what they're doing in a way in which we feel like is appropriate rather than kind of just being a, a mass market site who's just kind of monetizing, you know, um, 
inverted commas, dumb eyeballs, we think is a much more intent-led process. At the other end of the spectrum, what that then also led us into is services. And so we've got um, a couple of entertainment sites, and it sits very closely to games. So games and entertainment kind of drift drift together in terms of video computer gaming. And as we've been working in that area, what we realised is we were really able to help people make decisions about what cable, uh, what to do about cable television, and what providers to use, and should they switch, and you know where to watch what they want to watch, and that provision of services has a slightly different uh, commission structure to it. So we're actually now not just serving, helping uh, shops sell products, but we're actually helping service providers sell services. Mm-hmm. And again, especially when it's more complicated, being able to help people understand the things they need to think through in that decision making process is a real differentiator for us. Yeah. So it sounds like with those types of like lead gen kind of businesses that you have in, in place, like, is that your way of making sure that every brand in your portfolio has some sort of like, um, I don't know if at that point you call it like e-commerce, but it has some sort of like commission model in place? Yeah. I mean, I think a key part of our strategy is that we don't ever want to get to a situation where one of our brands can only make money in one way, mm-hmm. because what we do know from, about, for sure about media is media constantly is being disrupted. And so what we have to create is a really agile approach to how we manage our audience, because, you know, how they're going to consume our content is going to change and how we're going to monetize that's going to change. And so we're always making sure that there's different ways to make money from that audience and that relationship. And, you know, this example with you and I is a great example of five years ago, podcasting was really nascent. Mm -hmm. And now actually people want to have a conversation and they want that to be very intimate. Um, And so we think about, well, what does that mean in two or three years time? And and how does that get monetized? And and how does podcasting play through? And and that's very much the same about how we thought about e-commerce and lead gen, which is, well, you know, that's a, a way we can help. And we've got to lean into that part of the market as well. Um, so I do want to talk about, um, I guess, a look back on 2020. Um, and as I mentioned, like e-commerce has been a, a huge area for um, retailers or publishers alike. And um, I'm curious, like how 2020 impacted your business or benefited your business? Um, advertising for everyone was hit pretty hard in Q2. Um, e-commerce in Q3 and Q4 have been like through the roof. What are some of the, um, I guess, like top level highlights that you could share about how um, future PLC was impacted? Yeah, sure. And I think, you know, when uh, we went into the start of last year, one of the things we said to our investors was um, we had great momentum. And when we saw our investors in uh, May and we were right in the heat of kind of this new world, and one of the things we talked about was, making sure that we ended the year with the same momentum that we started the year that we, you know, we traded our business through these difficult times. And we're very fortunate that that, that that's exactly what happened. So we ended this year with, with fabulous momentum. We've gone into, you know, looking forward to 21 with, with you know, great um, audience performances and great revenue numbers. And I think one of the key reasons why why that's how we performed is partly because what we were saying before around the fact that, um, you know, we are in specialist communities and mm-hmm. we meet people's needs. And therefore, you know, regardless of what's going on in the wider world, that prevails. You know, you still do that thing that meets your need. You still belong, have that sense of belonging. And so we've still been very relevant regardless of some of the, the things that have been going on around that. I think, you know, like everyone else, uh, our, our audience actually continued to stay very strong. We saw the 
kind of what you would describe as the COVID spike during that April, May period. But actually, we ended September with a run rate audience growth north of 30% year over year mm-hmm. organically. So really strong ongoing digital audience growth. So we're really delighted with that. And then, you know, our digital advertising, actually, you know, our second half uh, organically was as good as our first half. So we saw mm-hmm. really strong digital advertising, particularly growth in first party in the second half of the year. And I think that that is... Um, symptomatic of you know advertisers uh, want to be around brands they can trust advertisers want to be around the audiences they're trying to reach and so for us we saw a real flight to quality during the last half of of the year um and you know you know during november and december those trends have continued we've seen you know really strong momentum there and, and really particularly in the u.s you know really strong p- positioning there in terms of First party advertising and, and the digital advertising growth. So we've been, you know, good double digit number growth. Um, and we ended last year, I think we we're 14% up year over year on digital advertising. So we had a, a really strong performance. And then the e-commerce just has been, you know, fantastic. And I think we, we, were, we had had an excellent first half of the year um, coming into the pandemic. And then I think like everyone, we know that some of the the big uh, retailers struggled with supply because they were just overwhelmed um, during that kind of March, April, May time. But what we were really lucky with is because we have, uh, we own our technology, back to what we were talking about earlier, uh, as retailers went out of stock, we were able to substitute other retailers in. So Mm -hmm. if people actually wanted to find the product, we would have the best information about where you could find that today. And so that served us really well and we were able to continue to meet the demand. Uh, during that during the summer months and then you know we've uh, continued to trade well and I think you know in the region of 50% growth uh, in e-commerce year over year is what we were looking at so we were very wow. pleased with the performance um, and we see that continue into the um, the peak trading season that we've just been in the middle of. Mm-hmm. Yeah that's that's awesome so um, high or good double digit growth for advertising digital advertising um, 50% year over year growth in e-commerce um, and since you're a publicly traded company, I feel like I can ask, um, are, like, what's your total revenues looking like for 2020? Yeah, so 2020, so the year to the end of um, September just finished, we, we did just under £340 million pounds of revenue mm-hmm. uh, compared to turning 21 last year. So, you know, significant growth, I think about 53% up uh, year over year on, on our revenues. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, it's really awesome. But what's really even better is that um, our audience was up 56% year over year. So, you know, you're driving your revenue the right way from your people and your, you know, um, so it's nice to see audience growth a little bit higher than your revenue growth. And then that we also turned that into into really strong profit growth, nearly doubling our profits year over year. So we were um, at £93 million of profit compared to 52 last year, the year before. Awesome. That's, yeah, that's... Not a common story, I feel like, um, coming out of this year. So that's that's really awesome. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, your, I guess, employee structure. Um, because I feel like as a global company, you probably have a very large um, team staff that you're working with. Yeah. I feel like in 2020 also it's important to ask, like, were you able to retain like all of your staff um, or did you have to go through like a lull of furloughs and pay cuts or anything like that? Or, I mean, it sounds like you did well from a, a business perspective. So. Yeah, it's a good question. I think, 
you know, the honest answer is that in the beginning of uh, March, when we realized life was going to be a bit different, we initially weren't sure what would happen. Mm-hmm. And so we asked our colleagues to take a voluntary pay reduction. Um, and we did fur- furlough some colleagues at that point in time. And in the UK, you're able to access government support to do that. Within about four weeks, we'd worked out we were going to be okay. Mm-hmm. So we actually gave the colleagues back all the money that they had been the voluntary pay cut. Um, and, and so no one in the organisation actually ended up taking any pay reductions. And then we paid back the government the money we'd taken from them because we didn't need it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we knew there were other businesses that, that probably would need it. Um, I think one of the things we've been really lucky with is, is we work as a global company. So we don't have a US president and a UK president. We, we're just one team. And so we're used to working from home or across multiple time zones or in different locations. And so the move to home working was almost kind of seamless for us. For many of us, it didn't feel like it was any different because you were always just having someone on a video call with you because your team were not all in the one location anyway. Mm-hmm. And so in some respects, I think that's made us closer because it's kind of leveled the playing field. Everyone's working from home as opposed to kind of that mixed approach. But it certainly meant that from our ability to kind of deliver the product and get carry on as normal, we didn't really miss a beat from that perspective in any way whatsoever. Um, In terms of layoffs and and redundancies, we we didn't, I think we made about, we've got about 2,100 people in the business. I think we made like 20 people redundant directly as a result of COVID where their brands just were really struggling and we, we needed to take some action. Mm-hmm. Um, but but we actually announced in October the um, recruitment of 150 new roles in editorial and video. So we've actually been investing uh, this year and it's been really nice to be one of the publishers that has come out and said, look, we, we're creating jobs and we want to hire more people to help our business grow. And I think that in a, a, a media landscape where there's a lot of contraction, it's been really good to invest in the sector. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. I was I was also curious, like how big your staff is. So, like twenty one hundred people. Then, um, yeah. I guess do you are you, do you have people in every continent, or where is the? Yeah, we've got about about five hundred in the U.S. Mostly New York, Washington, and then about one hundred fifty of them work from home permanently. Um, and then um, the bulk of the rest of the staff are in the U.K. And then we've got about thirty five people in Australia. I also wanted to ask from going back to advertising quickly, um, how do you approach like global digital advertising sales? Like, do you have, you mentioned that you're not really focused on regions too much, um, although some publications have a larger English speaking um, presence. So how are you approaching like the advertising sales and is it mostly direct sold or do you have like a pretty significant programmatic um, position? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. So I think that while we run globally, what we recognize is that individual markets need to have relationships from a sales marketing perspective. So we have a local UK, Australian and US sales team um, in, in each market. And they run their own sales relationship. We work, but we organize ourselves with one global sales organization. So if, for example, someone has one some money from Dell, for example, there'll be a conversation about that. So it's everyone knows what's going on within the the uh, manufacturer and advertiser base. Um, so that that works really well for us, uh, and we find that very effective. We we tend to have very close relationships direct, uh, so we tend to know the client really well because of the endemic nature of the content we create. You tend to find that clients want to be around you, mm-hmm. and and actually you've got a lot of editorial that's really interesting to them, and you have a good relationship generally normally with the PRs as well. 
for the larger clients, you work with the agencies as well from that perspective because that's just, you know, you need to be, be on board with both. In terms of our revenue split, about half of our revenues come from direct first party sold or premium programmatic. And then the, the other half come from kind of program the more traditional programmatic or um I think we call it variably, you know, third party run a site or remnant, depending what your what you what your language is. Yeah. But it's about fifty fifty. Okay. Um, and we talked about this earlier as well. You mentioned um first party data is something that you've been um I guess, focusing more on whether that's through the lead gen programs that you have on some of your sites or um, other areas. Can you talk about um, how first party, I think it's probably the crunch period in 2021 of, you know, getting down your first party data strategy. Um, Third party cookies are nearly out the door. Um, Can you get a little bit into like the strategy of first party data collection and um, where you're focusing um, in that kind of Realm. Yeah, and, and we see it as two different things going on. So I think that the third party cookie is going away. And so the ability to buy an audience based on a cookie, I think, is, you know, uh, going to going to be much harder for, for advertisers. And therefore, what we think about it is that the, the bottom of the stack, the advertising stack is much less valuable. And what we're adding in is an extra premium layer at the top, which is you know, really well-identified audiences using the first party. However, I think businesses like ours still continue to be able to, to monetize more the direct sold element because people will buy on brand. If you can't necessarily identify your audience or identify your user, you're still going to buy brands. Mm-hmm. And so if you want to reach a large consumer electronics uh, uh, audience, you know, we're, we're the biggest in the UK and we're, you know, you know, number one or number two in the US, depending on which month of the year it is. And therefore, you know, we've got the scale, but we've also got, you know, what hi-fi and laptop uh, endemic ma- uh, content brands. And so that they're really uh, valuable from that perspective. We're very lucky, however, from a first-party perspective in the business because we have a number of different ways in which we can access the data. Um, so we have a big subscriber base from our legacy magazines, but but across a number of different areas. So so we've already got an active subscriber base, which gives us a really rich data set. We've then got a really nice email community. Um, and that's a great way to collect and collate your first party data and, and to know more about your users. And then about 18 months ago, we, we bought a business in the US called Smart Brief, which is a B2B um, email uh, business, which basically sends out briefs. So emails that are curated around, um, around different subject matters. And they've got a fantastic, really good quality database as well in terms of people who sign up for their briefs. So across, by plugging together all those different data points in the organization, we're able to have a really rich data set, which allows us then people to say, look, you know, we know this is what people are thinking about. We've got our own identifiers on them. And then we can help to use that then to sell to sell a more premium um, advertising proposition. Yeah, and um, I guess the last kind of area I wanted to hit um, in our conversation. I wanted to focus on um, goals for 2021 and any special projects that you have in place that um, you're particularly excited about, um, whether that's like a new revenue stream or, you know, enhancing what you already have in the hopper. Yeah, it's a really good question. So um, much earlier this year, at the beginning of 2020, we acquired a business in the UK, which was a legacy publisher of uh, largely women's special interest and, and home content. Uh, we think there's a massive opportunity to get to move that into a US first digital first mindset. We've been 
Uh, we've launched nine new brands since we acquired that business to support that content mm-hmm. uh, with a US a mindset behind it. So one of our new brands, fitandwell.com, was ranking number one in the US on key terms for Black Friday, which is just terrific. So I think the thing I'm really excited, excited about uh, for 22 is growing that audience. Right now, today, we reach one in three people in America online. I'd like to get to two in three. So that's our big ambition is to grow our audience in the US. But by doing that, historically, our business was very uh, male orientated in terms of the type of content we, we created and wrote about. And this kind of evens us up. So I'd kind of like to make us more accessible to the wider population. And then I think from a product development perspective, there's always lots of different things going on. But one of the things we're really um, pursuing quite heavily just now is around back to the first party data point is around um, membership and consumer monetization and we've got great communities and so how do we turn them into memberships and and a sense of belonging and I think that in an environment where it's increasingly difficult for um, individuals to maybe socialize in the same way they want belonging to a community of people who are like-minded I think is a real opportunity so we're thinking about the productization of that. And um, from the membership side of things do you have any aside from like uh, magazine subscriptions do you have any like memberships um, currently in place? Yeah, so we've got a couple. So we've got something called the Decanter Wine Club for wine enthusiasts, um, and that's very popular. Um, and we were running uh, virtual tasting classes for them. So that's been really engaging, and we have some really lovely feedback from our customers around that. Uh, we also have an education, and one of our brands is Horse and Hound. Mm-hmm. It's very equestrian-focused, and we've been doing uh, membership training classes around you know, how to train in the winter and virtual online video classes and then a Facebook community and that's been really engaging as well so yeah we've, we've got some uh, uh, brands that have some content out there I just think what we're thinking about is how do we scale that more well I think that brings us to the end of this episode um, thank you so much Zilla this has been a really like really interesting conversation so um, I very much appreciate having you on thank you very much for your time Haley. bye bye and thank you for joining us we'll be back next week with another episode